This morning, we are starting a brand new sermon series called Loving Our Neighbors. And so as part of this, I've invited a couple of different guest speakers to come in and talk to us. And the first one will come next week. Her name is Austin Channing Brown, and she lives and works in Grand Rapids right now. She's over at Calvin College. Austin has a master's degree in social justice from Marygrove down in Detroit. And she speaks and writes about racial justice and reconciliation, especially within the larger church. She has a really great blog, and then she writes regularly for Christianity Today as well. So that White Christian Conference that Steve mentioned in the, um, in the announcements earlier that we're inviting you to, she was one of the speakers at that last year. With uh, My wife Rachel was also one of the speakers. And we met her and just thought it would be really lovely to ask her to come address the congregation. So we'll have Austin first, and then the second speaker is one of our own. It's Vivek Sankaran. So he and his family aren't often able to join us on Sunday mornings, but I've known Vivek and Amy for probably more than 10 years. They've been part of the same church congregation I have been, and they work with Steve Gray and with Lisa Ruby. So Vivek is a law professor at U of M. He primarily specializes in the rights of children and parents and child welfare proceedings. And so I'm asking him to talk about his work, but also what motivates him to dedicate his life toward making our world more just for those who have less power. And I hear he's a great speaker. Is that right, Steve? He's a great speaker. So it would really warm my heart greatly if we could make an extra effort to be at church over the next two weeks so that we can really extend a really um, just warm hospitality to both Austin and to Vivek and to really listen to what it is that they're bringing to our congregation. I think they're going to have important things for us to hear. So as I was thinking about starting this series, I've been thinking about the basic building blocks that it takes for loving our neighbors. You know, Jesus placed a lot of emphasis on this whole loving our neighbors thing in the New Testament. So when I was evaluating where I feel tensions in my own connections in life, whether that's with extended family members or even just disconnections with people in sort of the larger culture, I keep coming back to the importance of empathetic listening. So empathy is our ability to understand and to share the feelings of another person. Right? Empathy is the ability to understand and to share the feelings of another person. It's also a bedrock of our faith because God, through Jesus, is the ultimate empathizer. Right? He made himself human so that he could identify with us. We hear in Hebrews 4, it says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right, so Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions and the full range of human temptations in order to relate to the humans that he loves so much. Now, I consider myself a highly empathetic person for whatever reason. But even with my high empathetic wiring, I've often been surprised at how little I've really understood of other people's experiences. You know, I try to understand. I'm a person, I can often feel the emotion of the person across from me, but sometimes I think it actually takes, for lack of a better word, it takes revelation. It takes sort of our minds being opened to really understand more fully or more deeply someone else's experience. So an example of what I mean by that. So I grew up white. American, middle class. I identified as heterosexual until I was about 30 years old. I've had the privilege of traveling the world relatively unencumbered. You know, I backpacked all across Europe when I was in college. I saved up all my money to do that. 
I've lived in different countries. I've been in 41 countries. My American passport afforded me status and easy entrance into a lot of places. And with few exceptions, I generally haven't been too worried about my safety. But just recently, I've been actually working through some anxiety issues related to traveling. So Rachel and I have been planning a short trip with some friends up north this summer. And as we've been looking at places to stay and places to visit, I found that I've been getting kind of a, a mild panicky feeling inside, like almost a panic attack. And I was talking to someone about it, and I was like, it's just so weird for me to feel this way. Right, me, I lived in China by myself for years, and I've traveled to 41 countries. Like, what is happening to me? Who am I becoming? And she just gently suggested to me, she said, you know, perhaps your anxiety is related to traveling as an out married lesbian. And it struck me that that might be what's going on, that I have anxiety traveling now because I'm not sure how to gauge my safety or Rachel and I's safety. You know, even when Rachel and I were on our honeymoon in Florida last summer, we weren't sure how open we could be about being a couple at, say, the tiki bar down at the hotel or out in public. And so there's a guardedness that I've not had to feel in relation to traveling that I now feel. And what that is, is me losing my heterosexual privilege. You know, I had the privilege of not having to think about these things when I wasn't out to myself, much less to others. And I'd heard other people talk about that kind of guardedness, but I didn't really fully understand it. Now, I know that some people might feel excited to hear me talking about privilege at church. And for some others of you, it might feel a little bit wary about it. But I just want you to extend me a little grace here because I'm going to press into it a little further. Because I think it's difficult to empathize with people if we're not aware of our privilege, right? And of the power dynamics that are at play in their lives as well as at play in our own. I remember when I first became aware of the power differences between white people and non-white people in America. So I went to a large public school system in Indianapolis. I think my high school is one of the largest in the state. My school district was probably about 40% African-American with a smattering of Asian-American, a few Latinos, and then the rest of us were white. So it was a really diverse school. It was diverse racially as well as socioeconomically. And when I was in junior high, there were some really bad race riots up at the high school. There were riots that were so bad that they actually had to close down the school for two days because of the violence. And so then when I entered high school, I was asked to be on a racial relations council because the school knew that it needed to address those tensions in an ongoing way. And I remember there being, I don't know, maybe 30 to 50 kids that were on this council. And we did a lot of listening to people's stories about their experiences of going to school and about their experience of living in the bodies that they were born into. And I remember it being a real epiphany to me. Like listening to the non-white students and realizing just how different their experience of life was than mine. You know, I hadn't thought much about the color of my skin because it was my privilege to not think about it. And I instinctively just knew that this wasn't fair. And many of these non-white students were my friends. And I hadn't really had any idea. I also remember seeing a large range of emotion expressed in these meetings. And looking back on it now, that doesn't seem so strange, but it was really striking to me at the time. I think the voices or the emotions of people who have less power or who have been oppressed sometimes make us feel uncomfortable. But one of the striking things about our holy text, right, about reading the Bible, is realizing that it's almost entirely written by people who were powerless and oppressed. It contains a shocking range of emotions that are expressed by these people. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible is one of the very few ancient texts in the world that is written by the people who were not those in power. Right? These were not the winners of history, if you will. When I was an undergrad, I was a history major, and a truism is that almost all of history is written by the powerful. 
It's written by the people who have won wars, by people who are educated, who could read and write and had the money to be able to pursue those things, and they could create a narrative that supported their dominance. But the Bible, the Bible is this beautiful collection of the voices of people who are often not dominant. And that's partly why Christianity is so often embraced by people who are powerless. And the ancient Hebrews, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. Later, they were enslaved by the Babylonians. It was actually probably in the context of them having been conquered by the Babylonians and carried off into exile that they compiled the writings of the Old Testament. Right? The writings of the Old Testament had been oral history for hundreds of years. They compiled them and wrote them down. Jesus was also an oppressed person. The New Testament writers, these were all Jews who were living under the authority of the Roman Empire. Even part of the New Testament was written after Rome came in and just destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So these are the voices of the underdogs. Right? The witness of scripture is that the voices of the oppressed sometimes ring out in uncomfortable tones. So last September, I was at this Y Christian conference with Rachel, where Austin also was. And what the speakers were asked to do was to craft a 20-minute talk about why they're Christians. And it was especially interesting, given that many of them had faced really particular challenges in reconciling their faith with some aspect of themselves, whether that was because they're female and pastors, or just female, or because they're LGBTQ, or not white, or they were raised by single parents, or they suffered from a mental illness, or they were victims of violence, or they had an accent, or whatever it was. And these were really powerful stories. And one of the other speakers at that conference was a woman named Allison. And Allison's a transgender pastor. And then she got up to talk about why she's a Christian. She wove a really powerful narrative from the book of Job into her story. So she stood at the altar of this large cathedral and she quoted Job accusing God. Right, so Job is a man in the Old Testament and he was prosperous, he had a lot of wealth, he had money, he had a wife, he had children, he had grandchildren. He was thought to be affluent, blessed. But then he lost everything. His wife and his children and his grandchildren were killed. His wealth was diminished. He even lost his health. He was covered with boils and so um, um, sores. Thank you, I wanted to say soils. And Job said things to God like this, Job 10. He said, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint, and I will speak out the bitterness in my soul. And I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me, what charges do you have against me? Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Or this in Job 23, he said, if only I could go to your dwelling, I would state my case before you, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. And so Job, he's just like, why did you do this to me, God? What charges do you have against me? Does it make you happy to oppress me? Let me come to your house and I will argue with you about what's happened. And to hear Allison's use of Job's words was powerful and uncomfortable. She stood there and she was like, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you place me in a body that doesn't feel like me? Why is life so hard for me? I demand an answer from you. And she went on so long that I found myself kind of shifting in my seat. And I was like, okay, I get that, but move on to the resolution. Move on to the part where you've made some peace with this. But she didn't. Now, 
I know Allison. She's become kind of a friend of ours. I've seen some of her other talks on YouTube. She's a great speaker. I know her to love Jesus deeply, and I know that she's really, um, she's really a clever theologian, and I knew she was doing this deliberately, but what she was doing was profound in her talk, and it was so profound that it didn't really sink into me until later, and that was she was giving voice to the oppressed in our culture. She was standing there as a transgender woman. Like, if there's anybody it's still kind of okay to pick on in our culture, it's transgender people, right? They are, like, at the bottom of the heap, and we're seeing that we're seeing that reflected in many laws right now. And she stood there as one of them and just voiced an accusing tone toward God, a tone that's not outside of the biblical tradition. So I think that's what I want us to hear. Regardless of how we feel about anything, this voice is not outside of the biblical tradition. The, voice, the Bible gives voice to this kind of despair. And Allison was modeling that on behalf of those who might feel the same. And I just came away thinking, okay, who am I to judge her feelings? I'm not transgender. I've never had to live in a body that I didn't feel like I was supposed to inhabit. Like, I have not walked in her shoes. I don't know the kind of questions she's had to wrestle with with God. I don't know the ways that she's had to consider what effect um, coming out would be on her family or her friends. And so I was like, gosh, can I just listen to her emotion without judging it or trying to correct it? Can I listen to her emotion without trying to judge it or correct it. And that's one of the key elements of empathetic listening. Right, is that first we have to pay attention to people, like really pay attention to what they're trying to communicate about their experience of the world. And then we have to listen without judging their feelings. In the same way that I think any of us would want people to listen to our complaints without trying to fix it or offer us advice or bring resolution. Sometimes we just want to be heard. I think it can be easy to minimize other people's experiences of life without even meaning to, right? Or to dismiss their feelings because, you know, maybe I don't feel personally responsible for the harm that's been done to them. But here's the rub, and here's the hard thing. I, Emily Swan, I have perpetuated sexism. I have perpetuated homophobia. I have perpetuated racism and classism and many other things. And I've done that not because I'm a bad person, but because oppression is so deeply intertwined in our culture that we swim in it. You know, just as an American, just being American who buys food and clothing, I've probably purchased goods from companies that use slave labor or underpaid immigrants. And so none of us gets to be innocent in this. So we try to listen to people knowing that we're all guilty. We may not all be equally guilty, but we're all guilty. And our human tendency is to try to dodge feelings of guilt because they're uncomfortable. Guilt isn't a bad feeling. Shame, shame is harmful to us, but guilt drives us to change. And so if we can sort of own these feelings of guilt, we can own some of the oppressive systems that have been handed down to us. We can be aware of how they're passed along so that we can be part of bringing justice and healing and peace to the world. And the people who are most oppressed by these systems, they cry out. And the Bible tells us that God hears their voices. Over and over and over through scripture, God is hearing the voices of the oppressed. I was even thinking this morning about when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God comes and he talks to Moses. And he's like, one of the first things he says is, my people have been crying out and I have heard them. I have heard them. And the voices express a range of emotion. Woven throughout the Bible are voices that are angry, sad, doubting, distrustful, distrustful of God, accusing, imploring, defensive, 
subversive. Even hear Jesus being pretty subversive in his Sermon on the Mount. All of these things, as well as hopeful and forgiving and joyful, right? It's all there. I think the book of Lamentations is a beautiful example. So Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And it was written after Babylon, or after Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they burned down the temple, and they carried off most of Jeremiah's people into slavery and exile. And Jeremiah is sitting there and he's looking at his beautiful city that is now burning and trying to make sense of it. And he writes the book of Lamentations. So in the first chapter, we see sadness. Lamentations 1.4 says, The rose to Zion mourn. No one comes to her appointed festivals. All of her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Then in chapter 2, he moves into accusation. This is, this is profound. He says, How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. And he's like, It's because of you and your cloud of anger that this happened to us. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like, do you get that picture he's telling us of God? It's, he's picturing God standing across from him and his people with an arrow strung in a bow ready to let go. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. He's poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord is an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all of her palaces. He's multiplied mourning and lamentation like these. If I got up on a Sunday morning and just preached that, that would be really uncomfortable. Right? You have done this to us, God. And then in chapter 3, he moves to hope. Right? Hope that's echoed in one of the great church hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We love this chapter. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So it's almost like he's ping-ponging. It's like, you are my enemy. You are strong. Like, your gun is pointed at me. But oh wait, that's right. My hope is in the Lord. It's good to wait for him. He will come and rescue people who hope in him. Ah, but why did you do this? But oh, I don't have any, what other hope do I have if it's not in you? This is Jeremiah going back and forth. But we want him to close with that, with the hope, but he doesn't. He goes back to sadness and he goes back to almost imploring or begging God not to forget his people. It's not a feel-good book. You know, seminaries have been talking about the importance of doing theology from the margins for a long time. And what I mean by doing theology from the margins is this idea that we have a more comprehensive idea of God, a better understanding of God's work in the world when we're listening to the perspectives of people who have been marginalized by the church or society. And it behooves us to hear how those people who have been marginalized, how they experience God, how they interpret scripture, and how they apply it. You know, you might even say that the experience of the marginalized is probably closer to the biblical witness, closer to the understandings that the people who wrote the Bible actually had, because they also were an oppressed people trying to figure out how to relate to the world around them. And when we listen attentively to the margins, we hear prophetic truths about the current state of the church that we don't normally hear from our usual authoritative voices. And that's that we've diminished some of our brothers and sisters to the point of anger, 
which is actually a very legitimate and healthy response to the point of accusation and sadness and isolation and distrust. And those voices can drive us to be a better church and a more fit body of Christ if we let them. Now, in some ways, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because I think a lot of us in here have been marginalized by the church or else you're people here who have empathized with the marginalized. So one of the things that I look to is some of the voice that we have here, I think will actually be a prophetic call to the larger church. And I want to give us a framework to not be afraid sometimes of what those voices sound like. That there's a biblical framework for anger, for a whole range of emotion for what this looks and sounds like. And I would also assert that from the margins, you can see some of the most hope-filled assurances that God is indeed Emmanuel, that he is God with us, right? That we testify that he's with us, even when it feels like we've been rejected and shunned and silenced by our own people, and even when we wallow in shame and worthlessness. It's also worth saying that being on the receiving end of empathetic listening isn't reserved just for those who have been marginalized, right? Everyone needs empathetic listening. Empathetic listening is crucial for our healthy relationships. It's crucial for a healthy church, healthy society. Our partners, our spouses, our kids, if we can listen and really listen without judging the emotions that they're communicating to us can go a long way with helping people just feel heard and really known and loved. We're also in the middle of a really important national discussion on race, and I think it's our obligation, regardless of how we feel about one issue or another, to really listen to how our brothers and sisters experience life. And again, to pay attention to it without judging and to ask clarifying questions to make sure that we really understand. So I've been doing some reading over the last few years to try and understand better some different grievances. And so I have some books that I would be happy to recommend um, along a, a variety of topics if you're interested. And I'll just say that I know I have a long way to go, but I have felt Jesus leading me to continue to learn for the sake of love for the sake of loving our neighbor. All right, let's take a couple of minutes of silence. I should probably say also that it, it's, it's worth like, just as we invite Austin and Vivek to speak to us the next couple of weeks, to so just have a real posture of openness toward just hearing them. And I think that just that very, that just the posture of openness will help bring some change and healing into some of our own lives. All right, for two minutes of silence, I'm going to lead us in an exercise that I have personally found helpful in my own prayer life and that I think I've shared a couple of times from the pulpit in the past. But sometimes it is hard to try and empathize with somebody who maybe you're really mad at or who has really done you wrong. And so I sometimes practice a, a, like a Quaker prayer exercise. If there's somebody in my life that I'm just annoyed with, and so what I'm going to ask you to do in this two minutes, think about somebody that maybe you're in conflict with or that you have tension with. And then you just hold open your hands, if you're willing to, and just picture them in your hands. Just picture them laying there, standing there, whatever. And then just picture like putting them before God. And just God looking at them and you looking at them. And then just ask God to give you compassion, to be able to see them the way he sees them. There have been times where even that's been too hard. And so sometimes I'll just do this little thing where I just sort of like, toss them to God and be like, they're your, they're your issue. <laughs> you know, help me. <laughs> um, but if that's helpful, like let's just picture somebody in your, maybe it's somebody at work or whatever, and just picture God loving them and ask him to change your heart and to give you a heart that's compassionate toward them, no matter how terrible they might be. 
So I'll keep my eye on the time. Just slow your breathing. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we're open if there's anything you want to speak to us about this person. Amen. Mm-hmm.